Exodus chapter 7. Uh, you can find the scripture printed in the sermon guide in your app if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, or the words will also be uh, on the screen behind me. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In his book, The Pressure's Off, Larry Crabb describes this event from his childhood. It was one Saturday afternoon, and Larry decided he was going to be a, a big boy. He was going to go by himself to the bathroom and not need anyone's help. So he climbed up the stairs, and he went into the bathroom, and he locked the door behind him. And when he had finished and he went to leave, he was trying to unlock the door, and little three-year-old Larry couldn't muster up the strength to get the door unlocked. And so he began to panic. And in his panic, he began to, to scream, help me, help me, help me. Of course, his mother runs up the stairs and she gets to the door and can't get in because it's locked. And she says, Larry, are you okay? Have you fallen? Have you hit your head? And he said, no, I can't unlock the door. And so his dad Larry didn't know this at the time, but his dad ran down the stairs, went into the garage, grabbed the ladder off the hook, ran around the side of the house and, and leaned the ladder against the house right below the bathroom window. It's a good snapshot of life. When you find yourself in a locked room, so to speak, when you find yourself in a tight place and a dark place that you want to get out of, Questions start to surface in your heart. Is God fighting for me? Is God going to battle for me? Because it doesn't seem like it. I can't see it. And so I wonder, is he going to battle for me? That raises the question, how? How does God go to battle for you? It is so critical that you get this answer right because if you answer that question incorrectly, 
it can lead to a lifetime and seasons of bitterness, which we're going to explain. But how does God go to battle for your heart? To answer that, we're going to answer two questions. Number one, what's the nature of your bondage to sin that would require God to go to battle for you? And number two, what's the nature of the battle that God engages in to rescue you? Let's start with the nature of your bondage. What is the nature of the bondage of humanity that would require such an intense battle as the 10 plagues in Exodus chapter 7 through 11? What's the nature of the battle? To answer this, we're going to look at the situation with God's people in bondage and then the one who had them in bondage. So look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, why did God turn the staff into a serpent? He had announced this sign a couple chapters back in Exodus 4 when he told Moses, throw your staff on the ground and it turned into a serpent. But why a serpent? Why not a rabbit? Why not a squirrel? Why not a dog? Why not a cat? Why a serpent? Well, it's because serpents in Egypt were associated with the gods. And Pharaoh himself had taken on the symbol of the serpent as evidence of his authority, not only of his authority, but of his godlike status. Pharaoh was seen as a god in Egypt. You know, the stereotypical headdress of Pharaoh right, the cobra, right, the sign of the serpent, was a sign of his godlike status. Pharaoh was seen as a god, almost an intermediary between the gods and the people. And in many cases, he was seen as the physical manifestation of the snake god, which was one of Egypt's gods. Now you say, why, why is this so important? Well, when Aaron takes his staff and he throws it down in front of Pharaoh, and it turns into a serpent, you understand what Aaron was doing at that point. He was taking the symbol of Pharaoh's power, the king's power, and the symbol of his godlike status and making it crawl on its belly in the dust. It would be like taking a bald eagle to the Oval Office and wringing its neck. Right? Those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. But remember back to Genesis 3 when our first parents were tempted by the serpent. The serpent being the physical manifestation of Satan. Remember, they failed. They succumbed to the temptation. They rebelled against God. They sinned. And what did God promise at that point? He promised to put opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which eventually found its fulfillment in Christ which was basically announcing that there will be an ensuing battle throughout the course of history between the forces of evil and between God's people. Pharaoh is the anti-God figure in this story of Exodus. Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent who is doing battle against God's people. And this is important when it comes to the nature of your bondage. What we learn from this is that your bondage to sin is spiritual, not just physical. 
The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning that your battle is not just a physical battle, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This means that your addiction to pornography is not just physical bondage. It's spiritual bondage. That your addiction to any substance is not just physical bondage. It's spiritual bondage that your addiction to success or your addiction to making your name for yourself or your, your addiction to your career is not just a physical issue, it's spiritual bondage. Your addiction to being thought well by others is not just physical, it's spiritual. Right? The spiritual forces of evil led by the devil are behind all of the false gods in your heart. There's a battle that wages. Why is it important to understand this? Because if you don't understand the spiritual nature of your bondage, then you will bring the wrong weapons to the fight. If your bondage to sin is just a physical issue, you will bring the human weapons of willpower and discipline to the fight. If your bondage is just physical, you'll bring the human weapons of manipulation and of gossip to the fight. If your bondage is, is merely physical, you'll bring the human weapons of persuasion and control to the fight. And you will lose. Why? Because the nature of your bondage, it's not just spiritual, but it's powerful. It's powerful. When Aaron throws his staff down in front of Pharaoh and it turns into a serpent, how does Pharaoh respond? How does he respond? Look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. The Egyptian magicians did the exact same thing. They threw their staffs down and supernaturally they turned into serpents. In fact, these Egyptian magicians repeated the first two of the 10 plagues. They turned the, the waters of the Nile into blood. They made frogs multiply over the land of Egypt. What we learn here is that, the, that Pharaoh's priests, magicians, performed their supernatural wonders by the power of Satan. That Satan is powerful. The demonic is real. There is power in it. But what we learn is that Satan only imitates the supernatural wonders of God that Satan can only corrupt, he can't create. He's a counterfeiter, he's not an innovator. 
But the scriptures speak of him as the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders. Your bondage to false gods is ultimately a bondage to the one who is behind all false gods, and that is the devil. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 4, 8. He says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature are not gods. That's Paul saying, basically, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to false gods. And behind those false gods is the evil one. Thomas Costain's book, The Three Edwards, describes the life of Reynald III. He was a 14th century duke in what would now be Belgium. And Reynald was grossly overweight. He was a very big man. And his younger brother, Edward, attacked him to try to take over power, and he actually did. He attacked his brother. He took over power, but he didn't kill his brother, Reynald. Instead, he built a room for him in the castle. And this room had a couple windows and it had a small door. And Edward told his brother, Reynald, he said, when you leave this room, you can regain your title and you can regain your property. Now, for most of us, we go, so what's the big deal? Walk out the door, right? Well, Reynald was a big man, and his brother knew him well, and so every day he brought him a platter of delicious foods. And so Reynald, instead of dieting his way to freedom to get out the door, continued to eat and eat and got bigger and bigger and was basically imprisoned in this room. That's a picture of the nature of our bondage. That the devil tempts our sinful appetites with power, with success, with pleasure, with comfort, with approval, and we gorge ourselves and we are trapped. And it's in that moment when you realize that the nature of your bondage is both spiritual and powerful, that the only hope you have to get out is if God intervenes for you and goes to battle for you and fights for you. Now, the question is, what is the nature of the battle that God engages in when he fights for you, when he goes to battle for you? What's the nature of it? Well, the answer is found in the significance of the 10 plagues that take place from Exodus 7 through chapter 11. What is the significance of the 10 plagues? Why is water turned to blood? Why frogs covering the land of Egypt? Why a gnat and fly infestation? Why death of livestock? Why boils on the skin? Why damaging hail? Why locusts to devour crops? Why darkness? 
Well, each of these were associated with an Egyptian god. God was systematically defeating the false gods of Egypt that were enslaving his people. And you say, that's, that's interesting, but if, if God was just wanting to get Israel out of Egypt, why did he bother with the first nine plagues? Right? Why not just go to the 10th plague, death of the firstborn, right? which we'll pick up next week with the Passover? Why not just do that and get them out? Or why even the plagues? God didn't need the plagues to get his people out of Egypt. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have just in power, forced Pharaoh to let him go. Why all of these plagues? Well, this is why. God didn't just want to get his people out of Egypt. He purposed to get Egypt out of his people. And that's why the repeated refrain in the first parts of Exodus, right, that God gives Moses to speak to Pharaoh is, let my people go so that they may worship me. Freedom, so that they may worship me. God purposed to reclaim the worship of the hearts of his people, not merely to alleviate their circumstances. If God was just about alleviating their circumstances, just about getting Israel out of Egypt, then it would have been, let my people go, period. But he wanted the worship of his people. And that's the nature of the battle. God goes to battle for the worship of your heart, not merely the alleviation of your circumstances. And that's why your circumstances oftentimes serve to bring awareness of the false gods that are in your heart that God has gone to battle to defeat. God attacked and defeated the false gods of Egypt through the 10 plagues to go after the worship of his people's hearts. And God's spirit follows the same strategy with you. If you crave power, God's spirit will show you how weak you are. If you live for pleasure, he will make you so miserable that the more you get what you want, the un more unhappy you become. If you think life is all about making money, he will take away your financial security. The Holy Spirit confronts the false gods in your heart head on, and circumstances serve to bring awareness to those gods so that the Spirit can defeat them and reclaim the worship of your heart. Back to Thomas Costain's book, The Three Edwards, Reynald III was in this room getting this delicious food delivered every day and eating all of it and getting bigger and bigger and unable to get out of this room as he grew bigger and bigger. He stayed in that room for 10 years until his brother Edward was defeated in battle and finally he was released. But by the time he got out of that room, his health was in so much ruin that he died a year later. 
What's striking about that is that the walls that had imprisoned him were removed. He was free from the walls, but he was still imprisoned. He was still a prisoner of his own appetite that eventually killed him. God doesn't just take walls down. God doesn't just remove circumstances. God works to reclaim the worship of your heart. Let me use an example. If you're addicted to alcohol, you could remove every drop of alcohol within a thousand mile radius around you. You could remove the circumstance and you wouldn't be free because the appetite of your heart and your addiction would find something else to latch onto. God's purpose is to overcome, to defeat your false gods, to get the worship of your heart. The battle he engages in is for your heart. The worship of your heart, not just the comfort of your circumstances. But the battle for your heart is not won by you. It's not won by the human weapons you would bring, willpower, discipline, manipulation, whatever it may be. No, the battle is won by Christ. Look what happens here. Aaron throws his staff down. It turns into a serpent. What does Pharaoh do? Orders his magicians to do the same thing. They throw their staffs down. We got a bunch of serpents going around here. And then into verse 12, look what happens. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This would have been especially impressive to Egyptians because they believe that when you swallowed something, right, that when you swallowed something, you acquired all of those powers. And so this sign particularly did two things. It destroyed the Egyptian false gods and it claimed that all authority and power belonged to God. This sign of Aaron's snake gobbling up all the others was simply a precursor to what would happen in the 10 plagues, where God would swallow all the false gods of Egypt. But ultimately, this sign was a precursor of the death and resurrection of Christ. Because what we learn in 1 Corinthians 15 from the Apostle Paul is this. He writes in verse 54, as a result of Christ's resurrection, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus was seemingly swallowed by death at his crucifixion. Seemingly swallowed by death, Satan had seemingly won. Satan had opposed Jesus his entire life. He had used the power of government to try to destroy him, sending soldiers to kill him. He had used the power of demons to try to oppose and destroy him, himself tempting Jesus in Matthew 4 in the desert. He had used the power of religion, turning priests to accuse him. And at the crucifixion, had thought he finally had won. And yet three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and swallowed death. And in swallowing death, swallowed Satan and swallowed all of his false gods. Now, how how did... Jesus, win the battle for your heart by swallowing death. Well, think about it. Death 
is actually the fuel for your worship of false gods. Right? If death is the end of it, if all you get is a life here, 75 years, maybe more, maybe less, then you have a very short number of years to maximize your experience. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? If death is the end, then by all means, seek out as much pleasure as you can. By all means, make as much money as you can. By all means, be as successful as you can. Make a name for yourself. Right? If death is the end and you get a short period of time, then by all means, worship money. By all means, worship success. By all means, worship anything in this created world. But if death is not the end, if death is just the transition into the new heavens and the new earth, then your false gods lose their power. If your bank account and your 401k don't transfer into the new heavens and the new earth, and yet you will be provided for eternity perfectly, then your bank account and your 401k and money loses its power. Or if worldly success and fame doesn't transfer into the new heavens and the new earth, but you will be in eternity perfectly honored, right, revered by the Father, then fame and success in this world loses its power. Or if the pleasures and joys of this world are but a parable of the pleasures and joys you'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, then all the pleasures and joys of this world are but a parable and they lose their ultimate power to enslave you. If your disease, your sickness, and your cancer don't carry over into the new heavens and the new earth because for eternity you will receive a glorified body that is free from all of those diseases and sicknesses. Then the comfort and the convenience of good health in this world loses its power. By swallowing death, Jesus defeated and swallowed your false gods, removed their power, now, this isn't automatic. Jesus winning the battle, Jesus' victory is yours only after you have personally placed your trust in Christ. If you've personally placed your trust in Christ, then your Jesus' victory becomes yours. Let me take you back to that three-year-old Larry Crabb story. He's sitting in the bathroom, locked in there, screaming for help, has no idea that his dad has run to the garage and gotten the ladder and leaned the ladder up against the house. And so his dad went up the ladder, pried the window open, walked into the bathroom, passed little Larry, unlocked the door, opened the door, and Larry said, thanks, dad, and ran out to play. And reflecting on that, Larry says, early on, he thought that's how the Christian life works. When you find yourself in a locked room, in a tight place, in a dark place that you need to get out of, but you can't unlock the door, you cry out for help. You pray. And God hears your cries. And he hears your cries. Help me, God, so I can go out and play. And, and then God comes and he unlocks the door. And then out you go to enjoy 
the blessings you desire. Larry reflected on that at the age of 60 and realized that's just not the way it often happens. Many times God doesn't unlock the door that you want open. When a marriage doesn't heal, when rebellious kids still rebel, when friends betray, when financial crisis threatens your comfortable way of life, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die, the door doesn't get unlocked. And then Larry Crabb says this, reflecting back on that incident in the bathroom. He says, God has climbed through the small window into my dark room. But he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. God goes to battle for the worship of your heart, not for the comfort of your circumstances. And so you and I are left with a choice. We can either continue to ask God to give us what we think will make us happy, to get us out of the dark room and into the blessings that we desire, or we can respond to his invitation to come sit with him, to worship him, and to seize the opportunity to get to know him better. Let's pray. Father, everyone here is locked into some sort of room, so to speak. All of us want the door opened in some way. And yet, God, we hear that your primary purpose is the worship from our hearts that you long for and that you want and that you know will bring us the deep satisfaction we desire. And so, God, in faith and by your Spirit, we say thank you to those circumstances that you brought into our lives. that we so badly want to change, but that bring awareness to the false gods in our hearts that we have latched onto. And we hear loud and clear that you have defeated those gods by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So Father, would you help us to respond to your invitation to come and sit with you and to worship you 
and to find our deepest desires satisfied. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.